You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is the sixth and final part of our series on Explorer Freya Stark. So today, I have no notes. There are no maps or routes to examine. It is just some time to cover the rest of the life of our subject, Freya Stark. As I said in the last episode, when Stark returned from Yemen in 1938, it marked the end of her time as an explorer, at least the idea of her going off into the unknown and searching for buried treasure or lost cities or castles. But there is a lot of adventure left, which we will cover as we look at the rest of Stark's life. We will then wrap up by talking about the legacy of the woman. So let us take stock in the life of Freya Stark as the 1930s came to a close. After her final Yemen expedition, Stark had come back to Europe and settled in to write books and articles and lead her now glamorous life. On November 28, 1938, she delivered a speech before a packed house at the Royal Geographical Society. She went on for more than an hour to a room of 800 peers. They roared their approval. Charles Wakefield, who had sponsored Stark's second expedition to Yemen, said, quote, I do not know that I have listened to a lecture that has gripped my heart and imagination more than which we have listened to tonight. End quote. Freya Stark was hailed as one of the greatest living travelers. She met with members of the royal family, had invitations to the best dinner parties, and enthralled listeners whenever she spoke. Life was pretty good. However, there was this thing called World War II that was going to toss everything into a jumble, including Stark's life. We need to remember that Italy, where Stark spent much of her time, had fallen under the influence of Benito Mussolini. Her late sister's husband, Count Mario, had become a fascist leader. Freya Stark, despite being raised in Italy, was fiercely British, do not doubt that. She was a great believer in England, the crown, and all that sort of thing. And so, as the skies over Europe grew gloomy, Stark encouraged her mother, Flora, and her family friend, Herbert Young, to get out of Italy before things got ugly. But Flora was nearing 80, and Herbert Young was approaching 90. Both found it hard to leave the beautiful home in Oslo. They thought that they would be able to ride out the coming storm. War in Europe began in September of 1939. Stark went to London and volunteered her services. She was given a job by the Ministry of Information as a South Arab expert. It helped that she spoke fluent Italian, German, French, Persian, and multiple dialects of Arabic. She was the only woman in her department. Stark then received a request from Stuart Perrone in Yemen, asking her to come to Arabia to help him with public relations. The Middle East was a volatile region at this time, and British intelligence knew it. At worst, Great Britain was hated by many people in the area, 
At best, they were tolerated and, begrudgingly, respected. Everyone knew that the Germans and Italians were courting various factions in North Africa and the Middle East. The job of the intelligence community was to bring Arab entities onto the side of Great Britain in the upcoming war, or at least keep them on the sidelines. And so Freya Stark departed for Aden on October 8, 1939. She brought with her three films, designed to demonstrate everything from the power of Great Britain to the simple everyday life of the average citizen. In Aden, Stark began writing pamphlets and radio broadcast scripts. She offered up ideas and advice to the intelligence community on how to influence the Yemeni people. And that is when she had the idea to take the message of what England was and what the nation and her citizens stood for directly to the Yemeni people, including the women. Now, in Yemen, it was forbidden for people to watch most movies. Stark thought if she could reach the population directly, the common everyday shopkeepers and professionals and their wives, she could make them more sympathetic to the British cause. She had, after all, done it a hundred times in her life. It might have been in the tent of a tribal chieftain or in the home of a poor family, but she knew how to connect with people in this part of the world. Stark began her campaign by going inland to Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, and then at night she took her message to back rooms and homes and shops throughout the city. She and an assistant would set up their film projector, invite people in, and talk about England and what they fought for. The people came, some just to see the movies. Others were intrigued when word spread about what Freya had to say. The films, by the way, showed off all sorts of things, ranging from shots of England's great battleships and planes to scenes depicting English life, including sheep in the hills and farmers in their fields. The latter images were often the most moving things to the Yemeni people. They loved them. They had known the English only as soldiers, but here they saw they were like them. They were laborers, farmers, and shopkeepers. In time, people of all sorts showed up to see the movies and hear Stark speak. Once the entire royal harem showed up, and there were rumors that the local Iman of Sana slipped in one night to watch as well. By the way, what Stark was doing was dangerous. She could easily have been arrested for what she was doing. But as long as she didn't show her movies in public, people generally turned a blind eye to what she was up to. Heck, she was this nice tiny woman. How could she be dangerous? Anyhow, Italy would declare war on England and France on June 10, 1940, and soon Aden was being bombed. Italy, by the way, had extensive colonial holdings in Africa, including Libya, Eritrea, Somalia, and Ethiopia. The latter three were just across the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden from Yemen, as close as a dozen miles. Yemen, by the way, would stay neutral throughout World War II, and the Foreign Office acknowledged Stark's contributions to that achievement. Now, as word got out about Stark's guerrilla propaganda campaign in Yemen, she was invited to Cairo and offered a new job with the Ministry of Information. This gig, based in Cairo, was a whispering campaign, aka a PR drive, to counter the work being done by the Nazis in Egypt and Iraq. They offered to double Stark's salary. She accepted. Cairo, by the way, was the heart of the Allied presence in the Middle East in World War II. Everything centered around Egypt and Cairo. The Suez Canal, so critical to shipping between Asia and Europe, was just 25 miles to the east. In Cairo, Stark would be in her element, moving between civilian and military officials, Egyptians and Europeans, offering up advice, insights, gossip, whatever. The government appreciated what she brought to the table, and she worked long and hard to fulfill the objectives set before her. Stark soon found herself starting a new propaganda campaign. It would not be dissimilar to what she had done in Yemen. 
The idea was to invite people to homes and businesses and do something very simple, talk to them. Now, at first the concept was to have all the bigwigs in town get together, but Stark said this was not how it should be. You needed to have all the people, the everyday people, involved. The professional classes were invited first as they had the most to lose in the war, but then you needed to bring in people from smaller towns and villages. And thus, these gatherings would include policemen, students, shopkeepers, taxi drivers, doctors, whomever. This included English and Egyptian men and women. You create a small group, gather, talk, and share thoughts. You invite others. Then you develop leaders who go off and start their own little group and repeat the process. The key, Stark argued, was to be open and honest. You had to talk about the nationalist hopes of Egypt, the progress of the war, things like that. It couldn't just be a PR dump. It had to mean something to these people. Stark began by talking to small groups four times a week over tea in someone's salon. She advocated for the British cause, conveying to those in attendance exactly what England was fighting for and how Egypt would benefit in the long run. And she was very convincing. A person in attendance at one of these gatherings said this of Stark, quote, Within a half hour, everybody was eating out of her hand. She absolutely captivated the group, end quote. What followed was the creation of the Ikhwan al-Hariya, or Brotherhood of Freedom, propaganda network. Its goal was to persuade Arabs to support the Allied cause, or at least remain neutral. The Ikhwan was a stunning success. Stark traveled all over Egypt, often speaking for as many as 10 hours a day to the burgeoning network. Groups formed, divided, and repeated the process. In time, the Ikhwan would grow to more than 40,000 members. Because of her success, Stark was asked to go to Baghdad to establish a version of the Ikhwan. And so off to Iraq it was for Stark, and it was here that she would be involved in one of the most dramatic events of her life. Iraq was critical to the flow of oil for the war effort, but anti-British feeling was strong, more so than in Egypt. Many people were highly critical of British support of Jewish settlers in Palestine and the idea of creating a Jewish homeland, as England had advocated for. Thus, people in Iraq were receptive to the idea of teaming up with the Axis powers and being rid of the British. This led to a coup d'etat in Iraq in April of 1941, just as Stark arrived in Baghdad. The regent of Iraq, Prince Abdallah, a British ally, learned of the plans of nationalist leader Rashid Ali al-Ghalini to seize control of the government. The regent fled just ahead of the coup. What followed was a chaotic situation. Iraqi forces took control of much of the country, including Baghdad, and eventually fighting broke out on May 2nd. Freya Stark was the last person let into the British embassy before it was surrounded. The siege of Baghdad had begun. For the next 30 days, Stark and 366 others, mostly men, were trapped in the embassy. Stark's old friend, Captain Vivian Holt, was amongst that number. The Iraqis didn't try and force their way in, but those inside were now effectively prisoners. Stark would use her typical skills to help out the situation. Thankfully, the Iraqi guards were just as bored as the British, and Stark began to chat with them. With her mastery of Arabic, she soon knew some of the soldiers. They liked her. She was this small, polite woman. She thus got some of the guards to buy meat and vegetables for her and her trapped comrades. The siege would drag on, and the water to the embassy was cut off on May 19th, and soon there were sounds and signs of fighting. The RAF ruled the skies and pounded Iraqi positions, and then a British army from India, which had landed in Basra, approached the city. Thankfully, the Iraqis never seriously tried to capture the embassy, and the fighting ended on May 31st, Ghilani fleeing the country. The coup was over.
the Iraqis had lacked the experience, weaponry, airplanes, and ammunition needed to effectively fight the British. The conflict was called the 30-Day War by some, and by history we know it as the Anglo-Iraqi War. With that drama behind her, Stark continued her work for the Ministry of Information. She would ultimately set up an Ikhwan in Iraq, and also spend some time in India. Eventually, the threat to the Middle East would fade, especially after the British victory over Erwin Rommel and his Africa Corps at El Alamein in July of 1942. British intelligence had prayed Stark and her team for what they had accomplished. They had helped to counter German and Italian efforts to bring places such as Egypt and Yemen to the Axis side. And so, with the war in Africa coming to a close, Stark was sent to the United States on a lecture tour in 1943 by the British government. But before we do that, I do want to provide an update on Stark's family and friends in Italy. As I mentioned before, Stark begged her mother and Herbert Young to get out of the country. When Italy entered the war, they finally tried to leave, but it was too late. The situation in Oslo was not good as food and coal became scarce, and money sent to them by family and friends was confiscated by Italian officials. The local fascist administration then seized Herbert Young's home and made it their headquarters. Flora and Herbert would be given two rooms on the top floor. And it would soon get worse. When word reached Italian officials that Freya was working with British intelligence, her mother and Herbert Young were packed up and sent to prison. Everything they possessed was seized. Conditions in the prison were harsh. It was so bad, even Count Mario, now a fascist government official, protested, but to no avail. The two were tapped to go to a concentration camp until they were saved by an unusual source. Before the war, the daughter of Mussolini's finance minister, Maria Lolin Volpe, I'm not sure I said that properly, had met Flora Stark and had been impressed by her efforts to help young girls by providing them work at the silk factory in Oslo. Through her efforts, Flora and Young were freed. Sadly, Herbert Young died three weeks later. He had cancer and his imprisonment had broken him. As for Flora, she was able to leave for the United States. She stayed with her friends in California, John and Lucy Beach, who had had a place in Oslo, but she died a year and a half later due to cancer. Freya got a cable telling her the news. It said, quote, Mother went peacefully and without pain. Love, Lucy Beach. End quote. And so Stark would head to the United States for her lecture tour. However, what should have been a triumphant trip soon exhausted and frustrated her. The first reason was that right before departing in October 1943, her appendix burst. Peritonitis set in and Stark's life was again in danger. She would, however, recover and continue with her journey. However, it made her tired and weak, effects that would linger for months. The second reason for the difficult tour was the question surrounding Jewish immigration to Palestine and British colonial policy in general. Regarding the latter, the American press and public had a lot of difficult questions about British policy and intentions throughout the world. Great Britain was a nation where the sun never set, its possessions spanning the globe. When people pressed her on British imperialism, Stark didn't like having to defend her nation, especially with a war on. The situation surrounding Jewish settlers in Palestine was an even bigger matter, and Stark had her opinions, and she made them known. After World War I, the British government had announced their support for a Jewish homeland. The focus for this fell on Palestine, as Jewish settlers had been coming to the area for decades, trying to reclaim the land that they had been forced out of nearly 2,000 years earlier. The creation of an independent Jewish state, Stark believed, was a mistake. She thought that the Middle East would form into an Arab federation of sorts after the war, 
and there would be a place for Jews at the table within that state. For Stark, she worried that if a solution was imposed by the British, or whomever, it would lead to violence. She had already seen this in Palestine from both sides before the war. And in Baghdad, during the 30-day war, Jewish families who had lived there for centuries had been targeted and murdered. The conversation was fraught with pitfalls, as it is today, and it exhausted and frustrated Stark, as some called her anti-Semitic, for not outright supporting a Jewish homeland, as well as her call to limit Jewish immigration into Palestine until things were figured out. The controversy over this issue changed her. She never again wrote a book about the Arab lands, and she would lament the missed opportunities as these places and people she had come to love descended into fractured nations, often ruled by dictators and fragile democracies. Stark would finish up her U.S. tour, stopping in California to visit John and Lucy Beach, who had given her mother a home the last year or so of her life. She also went to Canada and collected some items of her father's, who had died a decade earlier. After that, it was back to Europe and the Middle East, until the defeat of Germany in 1945. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. With World War II over, Freya Stark returned to her home in Oslo, Italy, for the first time in seven years. But almost everyone was gone, including her mother, as well as Herbert Young, and other friends who had once lived in the beautiful mountain community. Her home was in decent condition, but she was appalled to find most of her book collection destroyed, the paper used to fuel fires when the cold had set in. The house's gardener, as well as the old maid, remained, and they were happy to have Freya back, as it meant some normalcy was returning to the village. Stark was also stunned to find that Flora's silk-making factory was still in operation, but just barely. She bought it back and got it up and running. By doing this, she helped rally the remaining villagers together to rebuild the community, herself leading the effort. Stark would also get some sad news on her return to Italy, finding out that her two nephews, the sons of her late sister Vera, had died during the war. One boy, Paolo, had been captured by the Russians and sent to a camp where he perished. 
The other, Roberto, had joined the partisans and fought against the Nazis. He died in the fighting. On a good note, Vera's only living daughter, Costanza, was still alive and was married and had children of her own. Anyhow, Stark would settle in Oslo, a place she would live at, on and off, for the rest of her life. Now, at this point, I want to cover two topics. The first will be Stark's personal life, specifically her marriage, and the second will surround her work as a writer. Let us jump into topic number one. We have talked on and off about Freya Stark's relationships throughout this series. After World War II, she found herself without family. Her mother, father, sister, and all her nieces and nephews were dead, save for one niece. Stark had always wanted to get married. In some ways, her mother ingrained into her the idea that she needed to have a husband to be fulfilled in life. An odd thing to say, considering how unhappy Flora had been in her marriage. Freya had struggled to find a lasting relationship, and then in 1937, she had met Stuart Perrone. Perrone was a diplomat and Middle East expert. He and Stark quickly became friends and had worked together extensively in World War II. The two would wed in October 1947, and Stark was thrilled to have finally gotten married. The problem was that Perrone was gay, and by all accounts, Stark didn't know that Perrone was gay until he admitted it to her after they were married. One of the reasons Perrone wanted to be married was to quash rumors of his sexual orientation, as being gay could end his career in the Foreign Service. Anyhow, the two would keep up appearances of giving things a go. Perrone would be stationed in Antigua, in the Caribbean, and then in Libya. Stark would follow along and play the dutiful wife, at least for a time. She was not good at such things and quickly found herself making excuses to be elsewhere. The marriage would ultimately fall apart, and the two divorced in 1952. They remained friendly and corresponded with each other for the rest of their lives. Freya Stark would never marry again. With that part of our story complete, I want to turn to Stark's career as a writer, which was far from over. Post-World War II, she would produce books, essays, and articles for decades. This included works based upon her time in the Middle East during the war. In 1948, she published Perseus in the Wind, a collection of 20 essays reflecting on her life, including the places she had been to and the people she had met. It was probably her most personal work, and her publisher was skeptical of its reception. However, it would be released to outstanding reviews. Many people consider it her finest work. In the early 1950s, Stark would put out her autobiography in three volumes. After that, she conducted some extensive travels to Turkey, which would become the subject of four more books. She continued to write even as she approached and passed 70 years of age. In 1968, she put on her traveling shoes for one last adventure, A Journey to Afghanistan. A book on the experience would follow. Articles, books, and essays continued into the 1970s. Her most audacious project would be the publication of her letters, which happened in eight volumes beginning in 1974. For this, she contacted family and friends and colleagues all over the world and asked them to send back the letters she had written to them. The results were astonishing. Stark had been a prolific letter writer all of her life, and people responded by returning to her hundreds and hundreds of her letters, some dating back all the way to 1914. The final volume of the project was published when she was 92 years old. Another thing to take note of was Stark's photography work. In her life, she published numerous books featuring her photography. The Freya Stark Photograph Collection at St. Anthony's College, Oxford, contains 6,000 black and white prints as well as 50,000 negatives. Many of the photos were taken on the same camera, a Leica 3, which she bought in 1933 and used on her travels. 
The results were a visual testimony of not just the places she went to, but the people that she encountered. So that is a brief look at the writings and photography of Freya Stark. I want to stress that there's lots of stuff out there, and I encourage you to learn more about her writings if that strikes your fancy. Now let us chat a bit about the rest of Stark's life and her legacy. Freya Stark would enjoy a luxurious lifestyle as she aged. She enjoyed entertaining people and being entertained, and she never stopped traveling going to every continent except Antarctica. People were astonished at her energy and verve, even as she approached 90 years of age. One of my favorite stories I read about Stark was that, even as she got older, she never lost her habits that she had developed as an explorer. Her godchildren were amazed at her ability to fall asleep anywhere, and when she went camping, she had the ability to organize gear and supplies in an ingenious and efficient manner. Stark was appointed as a Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire, a DBE, in 1972, and there were many awards for her books and travels. She kept active, traveling and entertaining, until she started experiencing heart problems around the age of 90. She died in Oslo, Italy on May 9, 1993, a few months after her 100th birthday. And that, my friends, is the story of explorer and traveler Freya Stark. Now, we are going to wrap up today by talking about the legacy of this rather amazing woman. We will begin by looking at what exactly Stark accomplished in her time as an explorer, because that is what we do on the show. So let's get going. First, she was amongst the first Westerners to ever reach the famed Valley of the Assassins in modern-day Iran, the legendary birthplace of the Order of Assassins. Second, she was the first Westerner to reach the ruins of the Assassin Castle Lamsar, also in northern Iran. She also was the first person to document these regions in an accurate fashion. Third, she was, again, one of the first people to travel into and accurately map areas of Luristan in western Persia. And fourth, her expeditions into Yemen resulted in the most extensive mapping of the ancient incense route through the interior of the area and included the discovery of the lost port of Cana. Now, those are all great things, but there is more than finding stuff and mapping places that made Freya Stark such an original explorer and traveler. The first thing is that she set aside the traditional idea of exploring, meaning going into the unknown with great numbers of pack animals and supplies and guards and guns. Historically, explorers often went out and exuded power and awe to the people they encountered, not Freya Stark. Stark entered an unknown area with just a guide or two, no guns, no threats. Instead, she learned the local language, then operated with courtesy, compassion, and honesty. She didn't boast or threaten. Instead, she listened and talked and connected. This was with everyone she met, from the lowliest villager to the most powerful chieftain. The second thing she did that so many other explorers ignore was embrace the people and the culture she encountered. Sometimes this meant rough goings. She ate what they ate, slept where they slept. But she understood these people, and with her ability to connect, they came to bond with her in some way. She bridged gaps of culture, gender, and language, something few explorers could do or even attempted. It's pretty amazing. And I love how these qualities extended to her work during World War II, where her efforts were quite the achievement. And the third thing I'll mention is that Freya Stark the Explorer was also a heck of a writer. I have gone through half a dozen or more of her books, and it's crazy to see how she grew as a writer. And it's even more crazy to see how entertaining and engaging her books are. At times, I wonder if her writings make her such a good explorer or the other way around. Or perhaps it's a bit of both. No matter, it is an amazing legacy to have your book still in print nearly a hundred years later. 
Now, I want to stress that Freya Stark was not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. She could be imperious, stubborn, petty, and vindictive. She was known to be a champion at holding grudges. And as she got older, she embraced her celebrity and became the sort of aristocrat that she often despised in her younger years. So, I want to wrap up our story with one final thought on Freya Stark. In the end, I think there is one really great thing about her, and that is her ability, even to this day, to inspire others to do things they cannot imagine doing. I don't think Stark thought about this when she wrote her stories, but that's what emerges for me and others. I started this series by quoting Alice Morrison, a modern-day traveler, explorer, and writer who first brought me the stories of Freya Stark. Morrison said, quote, I still use her as my lodestone for what an adventurer should be, end quote. That's an amazing thing, to inspire others so many years later. And when you think about it, it probably shouldn't have happened. You can read Stark's life story and see dozens of moments where she could have ended up a footnote in history, or simply forgotten. She nearly died as a child in an accident that scarred her for life. She endured an awful childhood. She lived through World War I as a nurse. Yet Freya Stark endured and thrived. She was determined to do something important with her life. No one encouraged her to become a nurse. No one helped her learn Arabic. No one suggested she head off to the Middle East to find some sort of adventure. And no one, except herself, believed in what she was doing when she got on a donkey or camel and headed into the mountains and deserts of Iraq and Persia. She was this tiny woman, armed with nothing but decency, courage, common sense, and patience. And it worked, contrary to what everyone told her. And it not only worked, it worked really, really well. She reached places and did things no other European had ever done. And then she came back and told those stories better than anyone else. So there you go, the story of Freya Stark, explorer, traveler, photographer, geographer, and writer. I hope you've enjoyed this series. It has been fun to talk about this extraordinary woman. Thank you for listening. Please take care. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other shows that might inspire you, including women-driven podcasts such as How She Does It and Her Money with Jean Chatsky. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.